you're the real homie, by the way. Like, <laughs> I love that you're just like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and be your body double. Yeah. Thank you. It uh, might just be like me being like quiet for a while and like okay. totally. Yeah, whatever. But I'm like, you don't, you don't have to be quiet. Is, I guess is what I'm saying. Like. <laughs> Like, feel, I want you to engage. I want you to, you know, like, if you feel like saying, wait a minute, what? <laughs> or, like, if you want to, like, say, wait, like, or have a question about something, like, like, do that. Like, just jump in. That's okay. Yeah. So, like, what I normally do when we talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I'm going to be reading through something. Oh, okay. Is the difference because I can't, um, it's, it, it, because it's still so fresh for me, my brain, you know, I'm having a trauma response to it. So I'm not like really able to talk about it in the way that I want to talk about it. You know, it's like there's a part of me that's ready, but there's very clearly a bigger part of me that isn't. You know, um, and that's why I I need to write it out. I I want to be able to convey what I know to be true,、huh? what I feel, and I want to be able to do that without like. Jumping back and forth so much, you know, like if I can help it, because like, you know how we are, dude. Like we'll fucking talk about something and then it leads into something else, and then like forty five、yeah. minutes later, <laughs> back to it. I know. So like, I I really like, because you know me, like I'm gonna do that literally like every three minutes. <laughs> so I I have to keep it written down. So I want to stay on task and.、Um, I'm also intentionally not going to be talking about the specific traumatic events,、um, and just because that is true doesn't mean that what I am sharing still, you know, has an effect on me. It does. Yeah. You know, it still hurts. It's still very fresh.、Um, <clears throat> So, yeah. So, cool. I like low key want to take another sip of this really bad wine, but it's really bad. <laughs>、um, maybe just one more tiny sip. Let's hear this response. <laughs> If I had my phone, I'd take a picture and send it to you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, the last step, I'll take, I'll take a selfie and make sure it with everyone. It's like this is me drinking bad wine. <laughs> oh, it's cool. <clears throat> anyway.
confess that I'm incredibly nervous about sharing my experience because I spent so much time focusing on the events that transpired during my time at my last job. Um, It's hard for me to parse out the lessons. Um, I've struggled for months to open this conversation, and I still struggle to articulate the trauma induced during my last experience in PWI. And if you've listened to our show before, then you know that leaning into our discomfort is a necessary milestone for growth, healing, and liberation. The more time I have away from work, the more I spend unpacking moments in my life where my race, gender, and privileges have shaped my journey. I think a lot about my time in school and how different my experiences have been based on where I was in my timeline. Like taking ESL classes in kindergarten to having one black teacher throughout my entire college experience. It's become clear to me how systemic racism has influenced my experience within academic institutions, and I continue to learn more each time I dive back into those moments. And the exact same thing can be said about my experience in the workplace, especially within the nonprofit sector, which I've spent more than a decade of my life supporting. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more it starts to feel like less supporting and more like exploited. <laughs> I spent a decade of my life being exploited by the nonprofit sector. <sighs> also, that was harsh, but true. It gives me chills when I say it. Like, I'm like, gonna take a quick sip of wine. (laughs) It's important for me to say that I'm nowhere near healed from this experience. I'm still learning to overcome the anxiety and stress that floods my body daily. Most nights, I lay awake in the dark, unwillingly replaying the events in my mind, and I see myself there small, broken, and afraid. The feelings of isolation and distress is so heavy that it manifests into pain across my entire body. And as I lay there, I can't help but wonder if the people who harmed me are kept awake at night, haunted by the very same memory of that day. And of course they don't, because for them, it was just another work day. So I guess I should begin with saying that the nonprofit industrial complex, no matter how well-intended and mission-oriented it's marketed itself to be, is just as harmful as anything in the for-profit sector because so many nonprofits present themselves as community-oriented, working for the greater good and whatnot, there's an appeal to working for them because you be- 
of the work. You became you become engaged and you give yourself to the greater good. And so when I got the job at my last PWI, I was fucking ecstatic. <laughs> like it was literally a dream come true. Um, like I actually had a dream, like this really wild dream that maybe I'll share some other time. Um, but I did share it with the CEO of that organization one morning. And I was in tears because I was just so grateful that I was in a place where I knew I needed to be. Um, I worked for the largest food bank in Western Washington. Um, I was sourcing produce from farms all across our region. And it was incredible meeting, you know, wonderful people all along the way. So in a way, I was literally doing what I wanted to do. And it felt right. And I felt like I was really good at it. Um, And I can spend time and talk about how great I was at, you know, engaging with the community and with partners and donors. I can talk about how I made it a point to get to know every employee and learn their names. And I can talk about how, you know, folks got a kick out of my enthusiasm and passion for our mission. But instead, I'm going to talk about the stuff I wasn't good at, which is the admin work, the emails, phone calls, tracking donations, going to meetings, managing a calendar, updating information on multiple spreadsheets, updating information on multiple databases, cross-checking the manuals, etc., etc. These are the things that have never really been a challenge for me before, and it wasn't until I realized that I'd never done any work like this at this capacity before and then it started to make sense Um. (laughs) so I did the things to help I made lists I had an online task manager I had various calendars like you name it and it helped I was getting at and then something happens and they stop getting at they hit a wall and I didn't even realize that. Every year, like clockwork, my body finds a way to remind me of the most traumatic events I've experienced, whether I'm ready for it or not. When this happens, I shut down and enter a depressive episode that makes even the simplest of tasks the largest undertaking. I didn't realize it then how this was creeping into my work until my boss let me know by way of an informal performance review. (laughs) Um, And it was around this time that I had also decided to start seeing a therapist. My job paid really well, or relatively well, I guess. (laughs) It offered benefits. And because I was salaried, I could flex my time and squeeze my therapy appointments and during the work week. And I remember telling my boss about my diagnosis. I had asked her if we could schedule a meeting to discuss some major life changes. And I told her that I preferred to speak somewhere in public because that to me felt safer. Maybe this is where I went wrong. (laughs) Trusting my superior with such delicate information, or, you know, speaking to her outside of the workplace. I don't know. Like, I thought 
I, I still think that she's, like, a really cool person. I have, like, no ill feelings towards her whatsoever. Um, but, you know, I just felt that because she was so kind and just a generally cool person, it would be safe for me to share with her that I had just been diagnosed with depression and that I would be starting medication. I had never received treatment for mental health before and I was really afraid of starting meds. I had no idea how my body, my mind, would react to it. And it felt imperative to share with her that this was happening since, you know, I was working like over 40 hours a week and I was on the road constantly, like literally driving hundreds of miles twice a week, you know? Wow. (laughs) So this is happening. Meanwhile, the organization had decided to hire a diversity, equity, and inclusion firm to support with creating and implementing an equity plan and so they hire like a new director of equity and the journey into organizational anti-racism begins which is sad because you would think that a nonprofit organization that's been around for 40 years would have had some kind of anti-racism framework implemented but you know that's just one person's opinion um Anyway, so this is where things get wild for me, where my life literally changes because I get really, really involved with the equity work. Um, Someone went so far as to say that I had the strongest voice in the organization, and, you know, for a while it felt true. It felt like people actually wanted to hear what I had to say. They wanted to understand my perspective, and... Honestly, it felt like they wanted to move those words into action. So it felt like the shit that I had to say mattered, you know? (laughs) Um, So anyway, a big part of equity work is establishing a foundation of understanding and trust. Having a common understanding on what we can all agree is racist and what is anti-racist. Consciousness raising is integral to developing a strong foundation. And to do this, we must ask ourselves challenging questions. We must challenge what we know to be the social narrative and dig into the suppressed history of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the United States. As a person of color, learning this information changed how I saw the world how I moved in it, and how I felt affirmed in all of the fears I felt inside. Those insecurities that followed me everywhere I'd go, that sense of othering, it all came down on me. It was just, it was a lot. (laughs) (sighs) And so I began to understand so many things about my life. Questions I had asked and, you know, things I wondered about. I began to think about how I'd been treated at hospitals, at doctor's appointments, my former employees, even at parties. 
oh, things began to click for me. And I began to understand just how much the color that some people claim not to see is the only thing that they can see. It's the only thing they see when they see me. And it's overwhelming and necessary for me to understand this because it's literally the turning point where I finally understood what it meant to be a racialized being. And I'm reluctant to go into all of the events that transpired during my last few weeks. I'm realizing how much I went through and it reminds me why I felt hopeless. I remember, I was actually telling Jason today how last summer was really hard. Last summer was one of That was one of the deepest depressions of my life. (sighs) And and, and a lot had happened, you know. Um, I endured a couple concussions from roller derby. I lost two elders in my family. There were some equity-related issues at work that I brought up. And some people did not like that. (laughs) And on top of all of this, we were at the start of the pandemic. And things changed quickly when COVID hit, and it just didn't stop. In fact, things became so much harder as the workload increased dramatically, and new routines were being established, and everything was just a lot. Thinking about it, it brings upon a lot of uncomfortable sensations. feeling a deep sinking pain in the pit of my stomach, the pain in my shoulder just underneath my shoulder blade, I learned it's called the rhomboid muscle, (laughs) is flaring so strongly it's pinching a nerve in my neck, my throat feels tight, it makes breathing difficult and I can feel my jaw clenching, the sides of my tongues pushing through the spaces between my molars. I remember to breathe and the pain swelling with every inhale and slowly releasing with my exhales. Mindfulness is one of the way that I've been learning how to manage my anxiety and I'm practicing and learning how to name that when I can because it's very grounding for me to say it out loud because nobody else is going to say it for me, right? So... Sometimes I need to remind myself that I have to breathe. But anyway, let's let's back up real quick and talk about equity work. (laughs) (laughs) 
You like how I did that? <laughs> that, that wasn't me. That was me faking it. That was me just like, okay, I'm just gonna pretend to be okay. Like there is not a global pandemic happening. And That's I'm just gonna also go back to work. But at the same time, like what you did now is kind of a picking yourself up. Always gotta look at it as the positive way. You were just thinking about, um, you know, the bad stuff and um, going back to that. Like you, you, these memories make you relive it, and it causes all that stuff in your body. But it shows a lot of strength in you that you're able to pick yourself, like, up and away from that. So don't think like you haven't grown since last summer, you know, or that you or you've gotten better. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. No, yeah, for sure. That's that's real talk. And you know, like I was saying, I Jason and I talked about it. I think it was today or yesterday. I don't know. I have no concept of time. Time is an illusion. <laughs> so whatever um and yeah like last summer I was just so depressed dude just everything that was going on and to like be able to see where I am at now and it's really because I've been learning how to lean into you know, the support systems that I have. I've been leaning into you. I've been, you know, leaning into Jason. I've been leaning into, like, you know, even the online community has been super, like, supportive just by existing, you know? And that's the thing. It's, like, you don't have to do anything. It's just, like, being there, knowing that if I need to just, like, rest my head on your shoulder... Or, you know, like, play Animal Crossing with you. <laughs> like, it, that's all, that's all, you know? Or, like, you know, I've been so moved by the folks that have been reaching out lately on Instagram and, like, showing their love and support. And that's been, like, you know, really it's been so heartwarming and so grounding for me to see that like you know this resonates this is felt by so many people and it gives me this feeling that what we are doing is is necessary right like this is the work this is how we contribute to dismantling these oppressive systems because there is healing in that there is repair there is strengthening there and And a lot of that can be found anywhere, right? It can be found at work or at school. It could be found, you know, in the unlikeliest of places. And 
and I don't know man I've met some pretty dope ass people in PWIs who are doing like amazing work inside and outside and like you know I'm just saying like we all have a role to play right and seeing the future and being the future that we want to see and so connecting with more people who like feel like a part of this or feel like there is truth or there is alignment in in these experiences then there is hope there is strength there is community to move you forward and further So it's very important to be able to, like, walk into these spaces where they're implementing that kind of, you know, almost like a strategy for them. You know, like for a lot of nonprofits, it's about checking the boxes because that's the only way they know how to operate. And so, I'm, I'm, this is like, this is tying into equity work, I promise. I know I'm doing the thing where we go like in circles for 45 <laughs> minutes, but like, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> well, you're teaching others. I don't want to say I'm teaching. I'm just like, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> is like there's there's a lot of there are a lot of well-intended white people <laughs> in the nonprofit sector specifically I mean the, I mean most of the nonprofit sector at least the ones that at least the ones I've worked for have been predominantly white and man I'm gonna take another drink hang on I'm getting like all up in my thoughts and feels right now (laughs) Mello take the wheel please OMG Been put on this. You think I put you on the spot? Like I've been put on the spot. It's just, I had one question. This person that was brought in for this equity training. Um, describe them. Which person? Which equity training? I've been. uh, See, equity (laughs) training at your last job. Um, oh, the, um, the firm actually like mad shout out to the firm that, that is, was working with, with us. Um, they, well, I'm going to, I mean, I love them. The center of equity and inclusion in Portland, um, amazing people. They, I actually like really love the work that they do. Their framework is outstanding. Um, and I think when that framework is 
implemented and it is I have to be really careful with how I want to say this because words matter (laughs) um I mean it, it goes back to what I was saying about checking the boxes right it's like CEI, Center of Equity and Inclusion, or any other diversity, equity, and inclusion organization that is BIPOC run and led, um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of emotional labor that goes into this. And so the work that they leave is then at the hands of the powers that be in the organization. And so the powers that be are therefore the ones who really dictate where and how equity shows up in the organization and when. And when. And It's very, again, it's very disingenuous. It's very, there's a lot of um, power struggle, a lot of um, I'm gonna pause because I'm just getting like, <laughs> so many things are flooding in my mind right now. Like I'm telling you, dude, it is so much to unpack. Yeah. Well, my, my question was like, was, you know, but I think you answered it was like, yeah. were they? So CEI would bring in two facilitators. One would be, I, uh, you know, BIPOC and one would be white because we wanted to obviously be equitable. Right. And then after like, you know, X amount of time together as a mixed group, we would then be divided into affinity spaces so BIPOCs would stay in one room with our BIPOC facilitator and then the white affinity group would go with the white facilitator okay yeah 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 that's um, that my question like yeah and again and that just speaks to like how coordinated CEI is you know um and so like remnants of that was left behind because you know the the goal of equity work is to you know like essentially it's it's to work itself its way out of there right because like again I gotta be I want to be really really conscious of how I say this the equity work that we are bringing into these predominantly white spaces are things, practices, histories, and just general information that most white people just wouldn't take the time to dig into because that is the privilege that is afforded to them. 
it gives them the opportunity to sit in a space where they can learn about not only what a microaggression is, but what it does to a person of color. And in a way, it challenges them to sit and reflect on the times they themselves have been, you know, complicit in that. And it challenges them, challenges them to think about how they could then interrupt that, or if it's even worth interrupting, if it's even worth challenging, is it even worth thinking about it? And so, of course, not everybody comes into equity work with the same fundamental understanding of white supremacy and oppression in the United States. And so one of the things that I really appreciated about CEI is that they had the historical timeline of the United States as, you know, foundation to their framework. And, um, you know, for white folks in these spaces, it's like, oh, this is terrible, oh, it's awful, we've come so far. And for me, it's like hella fucking traumatic because I am like literally thinking about the times that somebody in my family had to endure exactly, like like all of these things just like start fu- fucking flooding, right? Um, and uh, I'm sure I was not the only person having an emotional response, you know? Because like... I'm not, I was not the only person of color in that room. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing about equity work that a lot of, that's the thing about equity work that I feel a lot of institutions disregard is that for, for us, this history is the present. We still feel it. And this history, though in the past, we still feel it. (laughs) And we feel it so intensely because it is what has crafted the world that we live in. You know, it is this history that has dictated the neighborhoods that we live in, the schools that we go to, the food we're, you know, allowed to eat it's a lot right it's a lot so you're like learning all of this and you know there are some folks who like you know for them this may be you know information that they grew up learning you know, but for me, it was like, there's a lot that I did know, a lot that I had studied or, and had done research on and like understood. And then there was also like this other side that like, I just never stopped to sit with it. And the longer I sat with it, 
the more I understood it. And by it, I mean, like, systemic racism. (laughs) Um, And I feel that, like, once you really see it for what it is, like, you can't unsee it. You know, like, one of my... One of my friends calls it equity LASIK. It's like in the nonprofit, like in these groups, right? In these equity groups, we would talk about doing things with an equity lens. You know, you put it on, you put it off, you apply it as a filter when you need it. Uh, Which in reality should be all the fucking time, right? And then they'll find reasons why they can't do it. Oh, well, it just takes up so much time. Well, it just, we just really, you know really hard to get everybody together for that kind of meeting like they will make up excuses left and right because they can't afford to like slow down and that in and of itself is like a reflection of how intrinsically connected the nonprofit sector is to capitalism and the capitalist framework yeah (laughs) you know it's like no we can't slow down we can't stop we have to feed all these hungry people but but there's more to quote these hungry people (laughs) you know and with the you know with if you give yourself enough time to one slow down so that you may really like take inventory of your resources and then finding a way that you can directly connect with the communities you impact and that doesn't mean just the community like that you are physically located in I'm talking about the communities that you touch throughout you know your operations which for some organizations could be a lot right but guess what that's the work you're supposed to be reaching a lot of people. You're supposed to be reaching everybody, right? Especially those of us who are most marginalized. And in order to do that, you have to look at us critically. You have to look at us as more than just this monolithic view of hungry people. And there are ways that they do that or they think they do that and this goes back to checking boxes right well like who are these hungry people well 20% of them are Latinx (laughs) okay but I mean we can go so further down and unpack all of that and I'd be happy to (laughs) but I don't think it's my job or my responsibility anymore, at least. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's still my job. Well, well it's, it's not really my job, but I do feel like a responsibility to stewarding my, you know, the resources that I have access to. Yeah. But, like, one thing that you brought up that pisses me off is... The whole thing, like, oh, we don't have time because it, you know, for these fundamental things. And 
it's kind of like if it doesn't yeah it doesn't fit in my schedule it's whatever so it's kind of saying the same thing about you know uh BIPOX right because it's like yeah we don't have time for it mm-hmm. um it's it's not important to us because it doesn't affect us and another thing that you brought up is like whole thing about capitalism like especially during this pandemic um these organizations and PWIs are like they expect the same kind of work to come out of you when we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're dealing with a whole bunch of new things so how do they expect anyone to be as productive as before You know, and I, I kind of asked that question. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> oh, I did via email, via all staff email. Which because you were going, email. you were going through it with, I, uh, yeah. We were all going through it, right? Okay. And so like, that's like one of the very, like, I am hella cognizant um, of the fact that like as the largest, you know, food bank in the region there's like this huge population of people that we serve that we support with food and so there is this fear that if we don't stay on top of it if we don't stay ahead of it you know all of these people will starve Mm -hmm that's the mentality right they won't go out right and say starve but that's what they mean because anyway then it makes you feel like it makes you feel but it makes you feel like okay well i shouldn't kind of makes you feel guilty like well well if you're not productive then these people will starve your people will starve right dude okay real talk Mm -hmm. so like somebody okay These are my stories. I'm going to share them. And if anybody wants to, like, throw a fit, they can throw a fit with me. But, like, I am not sorry for any of the emails that I sent. <laughs> okay? I'm not. <laughs> Especially, like, one, this one in particular. Um, Shouldn't be sorry for it at all. Don't apologize. I know. I am not. I am not going to be sorry for trying to hold people accountable. I am not going to be sorry for you know, trying to reiterate and recenter values that I was promised as a person of color mm-hmm. that would be implemented and taken seriously. Yep. You know, and like, that's one of like, that's one of the big dangers of PWIs that they work so hard to give you the sense of safety and security Mm. during like this equity work you know and what that does is it makes you it it makes you vulnerable it makes you put let your guard down because you start to trust you know like because we're all in this vulnerable space we're all in this learning space we're all growing and unlearning together mind you that there are going to be a fluctuation of emotions and attitudes and behaviors 
right? And not everybody always agrees, but we find ways to work through it, right? And when it's in that room, it works great. But when everybody from that room goes to their respective offices and their respective departments and their respective, you know, sides of the building that they work on, that information, something happens to it. Those lessons get, I don't know, watered down, they become stagnant, they become I don't know. I don't know what happens to them because um, I, I would think that I would see them and I didn't. I think <laughs> you, know? you kind of take, I want to take a guess um, in those rooms where it works out. It, it's because you're in this meeting setting and it's kind of like, like, a observed group project and you're on your best behavior I'm taking this from a teacher's perspective right like it's like a case study and you're watching it go down and everyone wants to be on the, is on their best behavior right and they make it work but then when it's like in a real life setting and nobody's really watching that's when it counts they decide to show their character there, you know? That's where their true self will come out. That's just my opinion there. Yeah. It's like nobody's watching, but at the same time, people are watching, you know? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. I was just like, uh, I was just like thinking in my head, yeah, they show up solo cuando le dan las ganas. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or when it affects them. That's it. That's that fake shit, man. That's that fucking performative shit. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm down with the cause. I believe Black Lives Matters. I believe that you know, universal healthcare is a thing. But you know. I, I, shouldn't I tax the rich. hate to also quote Drake, but as he says, fuck a fake friend where my real friend's at. Where my real friend's at. That's it. That's you, boo. That's where, you. Or, or in this case, where, where my real ally's at. For real. And you know, okay. And let's... Can we talk about allies, like especially the homies that are like angry? I'm at the very least, I'm gonna try and keep this conversation focused on the nonprofit sector, okay? <laughs> at the very least, because I know that my ADHD ass is just like all over the place, and that's okay. I think we've been doing but very that's... well, though. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. Does that mean I get a gold star? Yes, two gold stars. I'd rather have a cookie. I'd rather have a cookie. Ooh, I have cookies. <gasps> anyway, um, 
yeah okay okay nonprofit equity work within the nonprofit sector my experience within <laughs> oh my god white people <laughs> oh white women oh my experience with white women in the nonprofit sector especially like during this equity you know anti-racism like journey <laughs> they just let me down they let me down because like like I said in order to come into that space to learn and unlearn together there has to be a certain level of trust right and you know the supervisor the boss that I spoke about earlier she was in this equity group we were in this equity group together. We'd sit next to each other sometimes, you know. Um, and I shared, like, I shared a lot with her and with my team because they, she had implemented equity meetings, team meetings. So it would just be the four of us. We have, we were a really small team, all women. Um, and, uh, You know, we would we were reading Ijeoma Balu's How So You Want to Talk About Race as a group. And so, you know, every now and then we would schedule time to like sit and talk about it and unpack and whatever. And that was really hard for me because for so many reasons. I mean, I am like, you know, I mentioned that this was around the time that I started therapy and so I'm like unpacking a lot of racial trauma while also understanding what it is to be a racialized being while actively living and existing as a racialized being within a predominantly white institution understanding now what a predominantly white institution is and why I have been feeling physically and emotionally and mentally the way I have been feeling for god knows how long at least 10 years (laughs) you know like feelings like why I could never move up even though I'd been with at least my my um, organization in Texas for example I'd been with them for 10 years and I was like I mean I'm gonna say it I was one of their best instructors one of their best teachers and you know I gave them my all and you know there was a time where I had applied for a position it was, you know, it was a higher up position. So, because I was like, you know, I'd been with them for, I think it was like six years at this point, maybe five, I don't know. And I was like, okay, I put my time in. Like, I think I've demonstrated that I am pretty fucking awesome at what I do. Like, my students love me, the staff and I get along really great. Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it was down to like me and this one other candidate who actually was another instructor and we ended up like 
training I'm, I'm like doing air quotes training <laughs> together <laughs> training together for this one position that we both wanted oh right? gosh like, I already know where this is going <laughs> yeah so I don't need to tell you who got that position right never mind that she then left like I think like a year later wow I know and and I think they went through like two or three people like during my time there they went through like since during my time since I had applied for that position they had gone through like three people or so and I'm like well fuck you guys (laughs) but Um, let me tell you something here so you trained air quotes um you basically showed her how to do the job. Yeah, you sh- basically how to do it, and that's why she got it. Mm. You don't think it's because she was white? That too. <laughs> but because uh, she was white, and then she pro- she didn't know. But I don't know. But I don't know. I don't want to make that assumption. But it's hard for me not to. I'm making the in, assumption, especially the. <laughs> Well, okay. Anyway. <laughs> I'm making the assumption. All right. All and right. you taught her it. everything. I'll take it. I did teach her everything. I taught a lot of people there. And they took I advantage know. of that fact. They already had it. Bro. You know, they had that whole thing, like, planned. Bullshit. Abused me. Mm-hmm. I can't trust no one. No one. No one. No one. No one. Sorry had enough wine (laughs) or maybe I've had just enough (laughs) I love it (laughs) um anyway so building trust with white women when you expose your vulnerability and they use it against you and maybe she didn't realize that that's what she did but she did and I mean there was a lot of things going on and I don't want to talk about it <laughs> instead I'm focusing on, I, I can't even focus <laughs> I think it's just I'm having a very obvious mental response to this conversation and I think my brain is just trying to keep me safe because it is traumatic and it does hurt because I understand now of myself that um, I was never meant to survive in a PWI I don't think I was meant to survive this last PWI. (sighs) And especially when I think about last summer and how I felt where my mind and my heart had taken me. Like, I'm so grateful for my therapist and for you and for Jason. Like, that shit was hard. And it happens because of those well-intended people who 
don't stop to think about the power that they actually have over somebody's life and livelihood. And it's really frightening for me to think about it now. They didn't mean to hurt anybody. They didn't mean to hurt me. <laughs> Excuse me. They didn't mean to hurt me. Um, at least I don't think they did. But by taking what I had said to them, what I had confided, what I had... And like they had seen it too, because here's another reason why equity work can be dangerous. Because not only does it expose us to the racial history of this country that we live in or of the space that we are occupying, and not only does it tap into generational trauma or the collective trauma that we as a people have faced, or we as people of color have faced. But it taps into something so much deeper. Like I said, like it changes, it changes everything. And it changes how you interpret the dynamics within a conversation or within a relationship with another person, whether it be a person you work with, a person you go to school with, or, you know, a person in your family. You start to unpack it, you start to understand it. And that's how dangerous for a predominantly white institution. And it's even more dangerous when that happens to a anti-capitalist, abolitionist, you know, fucking gachimbona like me, <laughs> who's going to fucking call you out on your bullshit. <laughs> like, come on. And that's how people should be. Right. Like, imagine, like, being told, like, yes, we love you. We love you for who you are and all that you bring to the table and your experience is so valid and valuable to us. You know? And then, like, oh, oh. Okay, but not that much. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? I thought you said I could be me. I I, I thought you said I could be real. Like, what the fuck? Like, this is... Is that not, well, well, you know, you have to be a certain, like, they still want to hold on to that white culture, which I get, because that's all you guys know, that's all these institutions know, and then 
they give this like sense of like no no no, we want to be inclusive we want you know we want you to be you but you can't be you in front of certain people outside of here I'm like well which is it now mind you Working Clara is definitely different from not, well, let me rephrase. Clara within PWIs is not the same Clara as the one outside of PWIs. And I think that's true for a lot of BIPOC. I think we don't really have much of a choice. And that's changing now, which is phenomenal to see. And I think that, you know, there's still a long way to go to where we can really be our authentic selves all the time. so I prefer to challenge that and I think maybe I subconsciously challenged it (laughs) because again I was like whoa y'all like me for me okay then I can show you more of who I really am and I'll start by telling you that my name's not Claire it's Glada yeah and that was huge for me dude Because I had never felt safe or, I guess, empowered enough to reclaim my name. You know, like, and I know you and I, we've talked about this back in season one. (laughs) 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 Uh, We've talked about, you know what that's what that means what our names mean for us and what it means to reclaim and you know what's funny what? this is like super side note like i remember during like my, I, I think i mentioned that they were doing affinity groups so like we had done or yeah we had organized affinity groups for you know, for BIPOC. So we would like put up flyers and I think it was like, one, I can't remember, like maybe once a month or once, twice a month, who knows. Um, we would have like an affinity lunch. So it would be bring your own lunch and, you know, folks of color could come and just hang out and talk with each other. And the facilitators would like bring a topic or they would share like, I think I was... You know, it would just be time to engage with one another and like kind of just drop the facade. And at the same time, we couldn't really, I I felt like we couldn't really do that because there were still some power dynamics at play, you know, not all the time granted, but you know, there's a director that would pop in and that just felt really it's it didn't feel as safe you know it's like this is supposed to be a safe space for BIPOC employees and we have a director here 
which is I know it's like okay this is supposed to be a non-hierarchical space as well but I, I don't know there's just something there's an imbalance there you know and I feel like if somebody below that director you know from that department was in there then that would be difficult like if my director was in there I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking well that's not true because I actually still settled I I spoke a lot of my truths with her so I take that back (laughs) but you know what I'm saying right it's like I don't know I just have a problem with authority (laughs) did I ever tell you about the time that one of my former employers also back in Texas told me that I have a problem with authority what yeah and I was like really and then like I've been percolating on that for like five years Uh, (laughs) yeah that's Uh, her anxiety and I was like well of course you do well no it's like no because like where does this defiance of authority come from and so it's just been like navigating that and it's like well yeah, when I think about like the the history of my people, well, yeah. and I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I have a problem with authority. Fuck you. I don't trust nobody. Shit. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. And that's hard, right? Because if you are, you know, it makes it hard to connect with people and I hate that it furthers the the hierarchical concept that you can't be friends with your boss Mm. you know because like I legit wanted to be friends with her she had a cool she has a cool fucking dog she lives nearby like we had liked a lot of the same things you know and like it's just like whoa like, I get that you're doing your job but if that's how you treat people when you're doing your job like I worry about the safety of anybody else that you know engages with you in this in this way because if If she, well, it's not, it wasn't just her either. It was like, you know what? No, no, no. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> and it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> so let's back up real quick and talk about equity work. Many orgs and businesses are adapting an equity framework, implementing long overdue policies that are reflective of a population that continues to be exploited till this day. And they do this without knowing or understanding the degree of their complicity. So when the equity work begins, there's so much excitement because the PWI is ready to start caring about people of color and now they have a way to show it. But when it actually comes to show it, do they show up? Nope. And so, like, the question that stays with me is, how 
can you expect to help like thousands of people if you can't help just one person like I don't understand that and and then that boils down to that like parasitic relationship between nonprofits and for profits that capitalist cycle that I was um, talking about earlier, right? Because they rely on those donations. They rely on those, you know, you know, close to expired products or whatever it is. And from what I've observed, You know what? I can't. I can't do this. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this anymore. Well, it's the reality of things. I just feel like I get on my high horse and I just... It's not... I don't want to fight. It's not what this is about. And I can, like, pick all day at, like what is wrong and I really like I really need to focus on what is right what is healing what is restorative here right and so I mentioned I don't know that I've mentioned but you know I emailed the CEO of this PWI and you know it's just been such a dead end of a conversation because like I I tried calling her in like I I wanted to let her know like hey um x y and like x y and z happened and I want to hold you accountable because this happened right underneath your nose under your watch however you want to put it and this should not have happened and it should never happen to anybody else. You know, and so like it already happened to me and I'm working towards my own healing and I don't need their approval or closure with them to attain that healing. But what I do need is for them to do everything in their power to make sure that they don't ever hurt anybody in the same way that they harmed me. And the reason that they harmed me is because they themselves, despite wanting to fight for equity and diversity and racial change, like they are perpetuating those same oppressive systems. They are still exploiting their staff of color. They are setting these incredibly dangerous high expectations. I remember one of somebody from the organization had emailed a newspaper article about a woman somewhere in the East Coast who was a manager of a food bank who had contracted COVID and from her hospital bed was still working until she died of COVID. Oh! Yes. And this 
and this employee who sent this article you know was praising and glorifying how strong of a woman she was to just keep doing this amazing work and i'm like what are you talking about why are you martyring this what (laughs) what and so like i took like i took my time i took many a deep breath right now (laughs) and wrote an email responding to that all staff including the entire staff right like Mm -hmm. because she sent it to the entire staff so naturally I'm going to reply all (laughs) and you know I called it in and I you know raised some questions and I was so happy to like see this amazing conversation coming from it right like folks were like yeah it was amazing it was really wonderful to see that you know and at the same time it's like whoa (laughs) wait a minute y'all are really gonna tell me that you think it's okay for us to work ourselves literally to our deathbed really okay so (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about that too. You know, like I need another drink. <laughs> uh, um, I feel like in our culture too, um, we're taught that it's not until this newer generation we were like, let me take a mental health day. You know, um, because I remember my dad never took a day off, and I remember he had a he's he was a supervisor at a construction company and the only time he took a day off was because he um like he got like burned somehow with some chemical and like he didn't even go to um the doctor like the hospital or nothing my mom put like savila on him um and that's shout out to savila dude i have my own growing it's if you're not growing savila or aloe vera mm. uh, do yourselves a favor please it is such a wonderful healing plant yes and he did it, it really helped him but that's the only time i remember him like taking off so i always grew up with that like no matter what i'm gonna go and work you know like no dude then i got older and i was like heck no like i feel like crap I'm going to stay home. My mom would tell me afterwards. She's like, just stay home. Like, you're not going to get better unless you, you know, rest. Like, yeah. You know, I've seen other stories like that where teachers are in the hospital with COVID and they're teaching their class. Like, because, um, you know, and they put them on the news. Like, oh, because, you know, they were, they were about to read the last chapter of the book. It's like, no, dude, that's not important at all. The health is more important. There's always a sub there, you know? Um, But I also wanted to, um, like, I get it. I miss my kids when um, they're not around me, you know? Or I don't teach them. I get it. Probably made them feel better, but it kind of, it's just the society, like, work, 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 work until you die, literally in that lady's case you know 
Well, that's capitalism. Yeah. That is literally capitalism because somebody will literally come in and replace her and the cycle will continue. Yeah. And that is the same for what happens within these PWIs. And that is the same, like, sentiment that I felt was being rotated with this email, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, praising this. But what I wanted to ask was, um, we've talked about this before, like, how did you word that so that they didn't feel called out oh man I'm gonna have to look for the email because yeah. that was that was like over a year ago oh my gosh that was about a year ago yeah, because we- and I don't know I, I should still have that email and if I find that email you know what I'll do is I'll I'll put it on the Instagram yeah because you know we've talked about that like that difference between calling someone in and calling out somebody so yeah. I wanted to see how you you dealt with that because if I would have if I would have replied I would have it probably would have come out like I'm calling them out like what well again like I took a lot of deep breaths <laughs> and really took my time like parsing out like what I was like what what nerve did did it strike and why and again, this was like at the very beginning of the pandemic. So it was, um, it was, uh, I mean, it's still scary now, right? Because like there's so, COVID's hard. COVID's really hard. And when it first started, I'm sure like everybody else, you know, we didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on tensions were high and because of the responsibility that the organization had to the communities that they service we you know the priority was making sure that we can get them food Um, and so finding time to like slow down and articulate (laughs) like hey yeah that was it was a challenge but it's a necessary thing to do, right? Like, you don't want to just shoot off and... Or in a, I mean, fuck, you should be able to just say, Hey, this is fucked up. Why are you trying to normalize and, you know... Why are you trying to normalize casual death? <laughs> I didn't mean to Why laugh, are you thinking but... this is casual death? You know? No, but, like, that's the thing. It's like, it should be okay to say, Hey, that's fucked up at work, you know? Like, it should be okay. Fuck that respectability politics. People are dying. Yeah, like, hey. And our fucking society has, like, has us, like, so fucking brainwashed to think that we should still be working at the capacity that we've been working at since this whole thing started. Oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. No. No. We are all collectively traumatized. We need rest. We need to chill the fuck out. Yes. (laughs) You know? So, comes back to another PWI. The schooling. Mm -hmm because oh my god that is what's happening and i just had this long talk with my friend about standardized testing okay this district that i went for which i probably mentioned before um but i won't do it this time um they um are still having and we're all remote there's no hybrid learning okay they still expect the kids to pass or get high scores on standardized testing they're still giving it to them still happening so 
it's like you're saying like how are you how are they expected to work at the same capacity or have the same scores as they did last or not last year before the pandemic right in 2019 um when when they did do their standardized testing last year i think um when there's they're all depressed you know there's all this death going ar- going on around them like how are we expected yeah. to do all that and how am i expected to teach these children that that they're like i don't want to focus on this i have you know more concerns It's like all these kids are growing up fast too with all this, you know? Like I don't understand how one is expected to um I guess be normal air quotes whatever that means, right? I don't expect it from my students. Well, and that's the thing is that I mean there is no normalcy. Yeah. Like whatever you know phase we go into after covid is going to be it's going to be new and it's going to take a lot of adjustment. You know, and I think a lot of us are so eager to jump out of covid that we are ready to just start living our post-COVID lives and the reality is that we really just have to keep doing our best to slow this down. for a fact that I need help with this conversation and I want to share I want to share and at the same time I know I need support <laughs> I know that I can't do it alone and I don't know maybe we can figure out some ways that we can frame the story we can parse out the lessons i don't know what it's going to look like and this is real this is so real because like <laughs> this is like this is me being real like this is the outcome of enduring a year of you know, newfound trauma and stress from having been exploited by a PWI. Like, I just can't handle things sometimes. I can't even speak sometimes. It's so hard. But it gets easier. 
And when I look back on the last year, I can see the growth. So I'm going to drink to that. Salud. All right, I'm going to call you. All right. Thank you again for joining us today. Follow us on Instagram for updates and more on intersectionality underscore in underscore diaspora. We leave you with the words of the great Audre Lorde. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. With love, gratitude, and hope, Clara and Melo signing off.